takes a stand and leads his family as he holds the Father's hand. I want to be that man. Society would say there's a new ideal today. She give it's more about what you can gain but I want to live a life that's marked by sacrifice like the Savior who died to show us all the way so I'll take up my cross and grace the steps surrendering is how I serve him best. I want to be that man who loves the Lord with all his heart, just like the word commands, who takes a stand leads his family as he holds the father's hand i want to be that man just like peter paul and all the saints of days gone by let me show that kind of faith to those who come Thessalonians, if you would please, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, I'm going to read just a couple of verses today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, we'll continue on this morning. Again, we're looking forward to Thanksgiving, I don't know how many of you like Thanksgiving, but I do, it's one of my favorite holidays, and uh, I enjoy Thanksgiving, and uh, I like Christmas, but I hate buying presents, and uh, I would prefer just to eat someone's food, and uh, that's much better for me. I like that a lot, you know, so anyway, um, 
I, I don't know about you, and again, I'm not the Scrooge around here, but uh, honestly, I, I think Christmas is ridiculous in some respects these days. It's just gotten out of hand, in my opinion. I mean, these Black Friday thing, is that ridiculous now? Uh, you know, Black Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. It's like, come on, you know? I mean, when's it going to end, you know? And again, I like the excitement of all that stuff, and I enjoy that. And just it wasn't just a year or two ago, uh, on uh, a Black Friday, we decided <coughs> instead of going out and shopping, we decided just to go to, to, to get, you know, half-priced drinks over at the, uh <coughs> be careful now, some of you are thinking the wrong bad place. <coughs> it's not where you go, it's, it's Steak and Shake's where we went, okay, <laughs> not where you go. But anyway, uh, the half-priced drinks at Steak and Shake at 2 in the morning. So we all got the family up. And this was, I think, two years ago now. We all got up. All the kids were back from college and stuff. And we said, okay, we're getting up. We're going to go to Steak and Shake, 2 o'clock. You know, that's going to be awesome. And uh, we did. We got up. It wasn't that awesome, though. It was really, I was tired as anything. But anyway, <coughs> we went up there. And, boy, we, we, we drank milkshakes and ate food and stuff. like. And that was fun. You know, that, I like the excitement of everything. I like that people are busy. Humming. I like New York City because you never, never, it never sleeps. I love to be able to walk out in the middle of the night and see a bunch of people. I like, I don't know why. Now, again, everybody's a little different, but that's kind of fun to me. I don't know. It's kind of exciting to me, you know, but uh, <coughs> anyway, it sure beats if they're walking on the street rather than in your room. But anyway, um, <coughs> you know, that's, that's kind of cool. So anyway, uh, I, I like Christmas, love it uh, in, in that respect, but I think Thanksgiving is probably my favorite just because it's more family kind of oriented, you know, more, I know Christmas is, but I don't know. There's just something about getting around and eating turkey and all that good stuff. Some of you don't like turkey, but, you know, you will in heaven. But, but it's, 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 <coughs> it's amazing, okay? All right. Yeah, get right. There you go. Uh, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. We better move on now. Uh, but if you don't like it, that's your business. I don't care. That's okay. We're all allowed to, entitled to our opinion, and that's okay. That's what makes life good. Everybody's a little different. All right. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. The Bible says in this passage, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Again, it's a Thanksgiving passage, obviously, but he says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. All right, before we move on, let me give you one piece of advice about Christmas. Do not, do not, do not, do not go in debt. For Please don't do that. Please don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to God and His work. You say, that's pretty selfish. No, it isn't. I'm looking after your eternity here. You know, we strap ourselves with debt. We can't even do anything for God. Don't get yourself in debt for over a Christmas present. Don't do that. Not unless you're buying me a car or something. <coughs> Other than that, do not get yourself into debt. Moving on. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, thankfulness... It seems to be a lost art, according to Warren Wiersbe, in an illustration that he shared in a commentary on Colossians. Um, he told about a ministerial student in Evanston, Illinois, uh, who was part of a life-saving squad. And in 1860, <coughs> a ship went down around the shore of Lake Michigan. You may have heard of it. It was there in Evanston, actually. And uh, his name was Edward Spencer. Edward Spencer waded again over and over and over again into the frigid waters, and he rescued 17 of the passengers of that particular ship that went down that day on Lake Michigan. In the process of, uh, or in the course of rescuing all of those people in that frigid water, uh, un uh, this young man, Edward Spencer, uh, permanently damaged his body. I mean, he had physical damage the rest of his life 
and it, it shortened his life, without to, to say the least. But some years later, at, at his funeral, it was noted that not one of those people who he rescued ever thanked him. Not one of those people ever thanked this young man, although he literally gave his life to some degree to save theirs. Isn't that amazing? You know, we're in an epidemic problem in our country today, and the problem is, is an attitude of ingratitude. People very, aren't very grateful. I was just at the hospital the other day, yesterday actually, and I was talking with one of the officers there. We're getting ringed. I was talking to one of the officers there and uh, at the desk, and, and I've, I've developed a relationship with some of them because uh, I go in there every once in a while. And so um, anyway, this, this particular officer um, was n noting to me, I said, are you preaching tomorrow? Because he's kind of a lay preacher. And I said, are you preaching tomorrow? You got, you got a message you're, pre you're preparing or planning on preaching tomorrow? He said, no, not tomorrow. I'm just praying, brother. I'm just praying. I thought, praise the Lord. I said, good for you. He said, man, I'm going to tell you something. He goes, he goes, I'm praying for people that I just, I look at them and I don't think I should have to pray for them. I mean, I look at them and they look like they've they got clothes on their back. They've got a nice house. They've got a, a car. They've, they, they've got a job. They've got family. He goes, and they're, they're just so discouraged and they're so discontented. They're so ungrateful, he said. He goes, we live in a world of entitlement. And I said, you're not a kid. Listen, people struggle with being grateful today, being thankful today. And in our passage, it's interesting that there seems to be a list of commands that are given to us here. We could go back even further than we did and even further forward than we did, and we could find a list of commands. And we're going to note that there's even more than ten here, not like the Old Testament. We say, oh, the Ten Commandments. Well, in this particular spot, there's a number of commands, so to speak. Some have referred to them as duties, and, and of, which, of which I would agree. I have no problem with that. However, they cannot be considered suggestions. They're not suggestions, folks. And today, you know that today there are those who would argue that we're under grace, and therefore we're no longer bound to obey or follow not only the Ten Commandments, but we're not bound to obey the law of any factor, no laws at all, that we're free to live our lives, that we're not bound by law in any sense of the word. They insist that we're, there's, we're not to be restrained by regulations, we're not required to keep a set of rules, and yet the fact remains that under grace, and th that under grace we are given the privilege, I should say, or the freedom to serve the Lord. We're no longer bound by the law. That's true, but we're no longer bound by sin either. We don't have to obey the lust thereof. We don't, we don't feel that we don't have to follow through with our desires. We can overcome those sins. We have a living Savior inside of us. The fact is, is that under grace, being not under the law, sin no longer holds us captive. We're no longer prisoners of sin any longer. <clears throat> and as a result of that, we have the freedom to wonderfully serve the living Master, Jesus Christ. See, grace never provided a man or a woman license to sin, but to love and serve. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, the Bible says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The love of Christ constraineth us. If there's one reality that ought to move you and I to holiness like no other, it ought to be the fact that God Himself left glory, 
that he clothed himself in flesh, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a perfect Savior, that he rose again triumphantly, and that, that he saved a sinful wretch like me. That ought to move us to want to be holy, to live a life of separation in a world that is sinful and wicked. But sadly, there seems to be a movement among Christianity today to avoid total surrender. To overlook complete obedience, to conveniently dismiss our responsibility to separate ourselves from this present evil world. It just seems that way to me. In Romans 6, 12 for fi- through 15, look there if you would. Romans chapter 6. Again, we get caught up. Someone says, well, are you trying to tell me that these are commands? You're trying to tell me that these are duties? Absolutely, they're duties. They are things that are not suggestions. These are things God demands of us. And just because we live in grace, just because we are children of God in the New Testament doesn't mean that we're not bound by God's moral laws and God's intentions. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Notice what the Bible says here. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Notice again, for sin shall not have dominion over you. That means it's not going to rule you. You don't be, you're no longer ruled by sin or by your flesh or by your, your carnal desire. You don't have to be ruled anymore. As a matter of fact, he says, you're not under the law. Therefore, it doesn't rule you anymore. You're under grace. Grace is not an opportunity to sin, but instead it's an opportunity to serve. It's the privilege that we have not to be bound any longer, that now we can freely lift up our voice to God without worry that we're going to be drugged down to hell. He goes on to say, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. God forbid. Someone comes to my office and says, you know what? I'm just through with my husband. I'm through with my wife. I don't like how they act. I don't like what they they look like anymore. They used to be very pretty. Now she's not pretty anymore. And I'm just a little bit bothered by that. Things just aren't going well. And you know what? I have found somebody that I think appreciates me for who I am, that loves me for what I am. And you know what? I think God's put us together. What do I tell them? You say, well, tell them, go to the Bible. And you know what they turn around and say often? Well, listen to me. I understand what the Bible says, but we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. And God's a God of grace. And God understands my need. And God wouldn't have me to be unhappy. And God wouldn't want me to have to just endure. God wouldn't want me just to have to stay in that marriage because of duty. God's a good God. And God, I'm under grace now. I'm not under the law anymore. This is the kind of stuff we're getting into today. So it's all right for you to leave your wife now because God's given you grace. You're not under the law. You're no longer commanded by any rules or regulations. There's nothing, no set of standards that you have to live up to anymore because now that you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you're saved by grace. You can live however you want. You've got a license. That's a, that's a sin right out of hell. That's a lie right out of hell. That's wrong. The fact that we have to justify what we do by deeming it grace is proof positive that there's something wrong. If you have to point to grace to prove that you're okay with what you're doing, there's something wrong with what you're doing if you had to point to that. Are you kidding me? It's amazing to me. Why do we even flirt with attitudes or actions that could be misunderstood as sin? Why do we even flirt with them? 
I mean, I would think that the man or woman of God that desires holiness in their life and wants to please the Lord Jesus Christ would go the extra mile to remove any questionable practices or perspectives and just simply obey the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, abstain from all appearance of evil. So why do we flirt with it? So we find a list of duties here in 1 Thessalonians. Well, we don't, that, that, that's just, those are suggestions because we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. That's, those are things that we just try to do. We do the best we can. God doesn't really expect it. Yes, He does. He expects these things to be fulfilled in our lives. These are duties that God expects His children to fulfill. These are not suggestions but requirements. Giving thanks in everything, the Bible says in verse 18. I'm telling you, that's a tall order. That's a tall order, man. And, and fulfilling that duty is not necessarily easy. We can stand up here all day and talk about, well, you ought to thank God and everything and just trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Let me tell you something. It's tough. Thank God and everything? Man, that's a, that's a, a, a tremendous requirement. But in our passage, there are two other passages that we've already read that help us to unlock the ability to perform that duty. You say, what are they? Well, verse 16, the Bible says, rejoice always. You say, that's a tough one right there. I know, but if you'll rejoice always, you're going to find some things come a little easier in your life. In first chapter 5, rejoice evermore, the Bible says. When the Bible speaks of rejoicing in this particular passage, it's referring to spiritual joy. See, you as a believer, myself as a believer, we're, we're not to base our joy or our, our rejoicing on the quality of life that we possess or the number of years that we have. That's not how we base our joy. I mean, they're not based on, uh, on our position in a company or our pay rate. That's not what it's based on. I mean, we're not to base our joy or rejoicing on whether that we're, we're married or not, whether we have a nice family or not, whether we have a multitude of friends or not. That's not what we're to base our joy and our rejoicing on as believers. We are to rejoice in whatever years God grants us and whatever good God bestows to us. The real joy is rejoicing, and the real joy in rejoicing is found in Jesus Christ alone, in a person, not a position, not a place, not a relationship, not a financial stability, not some bank account, but in a Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know what? Because our joy is based in a person, Jesus Christ, it is a joy that will last for eternity. It's not fleeting. It is constant. It is continual. And it is everlasting. In Christ, our joy will be full. And if it is not, it is our fault. If you do not feast continually in the presence of Christ, it is your fault. Because the table is spread John 10, 10 says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. No, no. It's time to quit blaming God for our misery and accept some responsibility for it. Joy is not based on circumstance. Joy is based on a person, Jesus Christ. And our rejoicing is rooted in a person, Him, the Lord Jesus. If we're unhappy and sorrowful for any earthly reason, we can still rejoice always. 
2 Corinthians 6.10 says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Can you imagine? 6.10. What a great passage that is. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Rejoice always. First of all, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Then he runs to this next passage. He says, pray without ceasing. See, the way to rejoicing evermore is through praying without ceasing. You get that? You want to rejoice. You say, how do I rejoice then? You pray without ceasing. If you would pray without ceasing, I would pray without ceasing, we would find that we would rejoice. And we would rejoice more if we prayed more. It is every Christian's duty to schedule prayer and to pray without ceasing. That is not optional. Pray without ceasing. You are to schedule prayer in your life. You're to pray spontaneously in your life. That is not something that you decide or I decide that an optional. We go, well, you know, I just don't feel like praying. That's not what Christ said. He said, I want you to pray without ceasing. So we got to keep a very faithful prayer life until the day we arrive on his shore. Till we meet him face to face. And let me just say, the idea here that men should do nothing, the idea here is not that men should do nothing but pray. That's not the issue. Pray without ceasing. I'm supposed to pray every day, 24 hours a day. How am I supposed to work, preacher? How am I supposed to take care of my How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? Wait a second. The idea is not that men should do nothing but pray, but that nothing else we do should hinder or keep us from being uh, praying as it's outlined in Scripture here. That we are to pray constantly, continually, that we're to be in a spirit of prayer even. You can do nothing more. Excuse me, let me quote A.J. Gordon. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you can, do never, but you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. And then I, I read this from John Wesley. He was a famous evangelist. He would spend two hours a day in prayer. He said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. It is nothing except in response to believing prayer. Why do you think we're asking as a church, let's as a church family get together and pray concerning these issues of selling homes and, and, and uh, purchasing land and ultimately money for the renovation? Why are we asking you to pray like that? Because we believe that God answers prayer, believing prayer. Also from S.D. Gordon, he said, Prayer strikes the winning blow. Service is simply picking up the pieces. Everything starts, everything rises, and ultimately falls on prayer. Dr. Bruce Cummins, years ago, used to say to, to, to our class, our theology class, he, would, he made this statement often. He said, laziness is the besetting sin of the ministry. Laziness is the besetting sin of the ministry. But prayerlessness is the greatest sin of the ministry. Prayer is the fuel that powers all other machinery. And that's something that we need to be constantly involved in is prayer. So if we pray without ceasing, we'll have occasion to rejoice due to answered prayer and the tangible presence and power of Christ himself in our lives. If you pray as God intends us to pray, as I pray as God intends us to pray, I will have many opportunities to praise God to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because of answered prayer and things that God are, is doing very visibly in my life and others' lives that I'm praying about. Number three, he finally ends up at our passage and he says, Give thanks in everything. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Again, if we pray without ceasing, we'll never lack occasion for thanksgiving. Because we'll always have something to thank God for. Because He's always good and faithful to answer prayer. Again, those answers or blessings of prayer will afford us many opportunities to thank Him on many occasions. Constantly, continually. You say, I don't have a lot to be thankful for. You're not praying much. You're not praying much. I have a hard time rejoicing over anything, man. Everything's miserable in my life. You're not praying enough. You're not, you don't see God working in your life. You don't see the, the literal hand of God accomplishing anything in the lives of those around you then. Oh, you just don't understand my circumstances. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. What, what circumstance in life is bigger than the God that created us? I mean, we really have, have talked ourselves out of hope, talked ourselves out of rejoicing, talked ourselves out of blessing. Do something with this, brother. It's ringing every time I walk even one step over there, and I, that drives me crazy. If I'm the only one that hears it, it's driving me crazy. Do something. Just change that EQ or something. Make me feel better. Because I can't rejoice. Now I'm not, I'm not even on now. But okay, very good. All right? Shut all that other junk off. If there's any reverb or anything, take it all off. We'll just go with flat talk. Okay. And so we, we note that. Now, again, in Philippians 4, 6, the Bible says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. We need to be thankful in every circumstance, every condition of our life, whether in the midst of problems or whether in prosperity. We're to be thankful, the Bible says. Philippians 4, 11 through 12. Turn there if you would, please. Philippians chapter 4, 11 through 12. Great passages in our Bible. Tremendous passages. Notice what the Bible says. Again, we're talking about being thankful. Talking about being thankful. All right? Philippians chapter 4. Someone says, why in the world don't you do sound checks before? Well, because you're not here to mess it all up. <laughs> See, when bodies get in here, it changes the sound, the, the space. When, when they're not here, it sounds really good, but you put people in, it changes the dynamic of the sound. And then things have to be affected and adjusted, and then all of a sudden it's going, woo, 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 and all that. So we, we try to work on it, okay? It's very complicated at times. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have the best equipment in the world in here. As you can see, those speakers, I think, cost us $183 a pair. No, $147 a piece. That's what it was, 300 bucks a pair. And that's nothing for speakers. You realize that I looked up speakers the other day, and one speaker, uh, it, was a, it was just a monitor speaker, 12-inch horn, a 12-inch uh, woofer, or not a woofer, but a 12-inch speaker, and then a, a little uh, horn in it. They, they, wanted, they wanted over $400 for that one, one little monitor. $800 for the speaker that ultimately that you could use to point out that direction. Over $800, $1,000 per speaker. I'm just saying, stuff's expensive, folks. It's, it's really high in that area. And, uh, of course, we've got 30000 scheduled to be purchased. No, I'm joking. But anyway, uh, those will probably be at the carousel for a while. No, <laughs> you never know. I don't know what we're going to do. But uh, we're working on it. We're going to replace some of this stuff in here and try to get it working here, and then we'll worry about the carousel later. But it'll be fine. Okay, um, 
Philippians 4, 11 and 12. Look at this. If you don't get anything today, we're going to close here way ahead of my schedule. I haven't even gotten to the message yet. Notice what it says in Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. You know how Paul learned to be content? You know how he learned to be content? Struggles. Sorrow. Suffering. That's how he learned. In his book, I once was blind, but now I squint. Kent Crockett relates a story about a woman whose father had to undergo radiation treatments for throat cancer. The therapy damaged his taste buds so, so that he, he really he couldn't taste food at all, really. He had no taste buds. He could not taste food at that point. His, his inability to enjoy a meal made eating a, just basically a drudgery and a, just a daily duty more than anything. The doctor told him that his taste might return one day, but there was no guarantees, but it would certainly not be for a while until after the treatments were finished. Weeks passed. Then months passed. Every meal became a forced feeding to keep him alive. After eating flavorless food for over a year, he sat down for dinner one evening. Reluctantly, he forced a fork full of food into his mouth, and he discovered that his taste buds had returned. What most people would call a bland dinner became the best meal he'd ever eaten in his life. The best meal he ever ate in his life. See, he had done without taste buds for a year. He didn't know what food tasted like for a whole year. And boy, when anything touched the tip of that tongue, anything triggered those taste buds now. He was thankful and grateful. He wasn't whining, honey, I don't like that anymore. That doesn't taste good. No, he was just thankful to have some taste buds and be able to taste food at all. And may I say that that's how the Apostle Paul learned to be grateful and thankful. That's how the Apostle Paul said, I've, I, 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 whatsoever state I am therewith to be content, I have learned, I have learned that in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. How'd you learn it, Paul? Because I was shipwrecked. I was stuck out in the middle of nowhere. I was left dead in Lystra by stoning. I know what it is to have my friends stab me in the back. I know what it is to serve Jesus Christ alone. I know what it is to go out into the world and try to stand up for Jesus and have people casting stones at you and seeking to harm you, malign and mistreat you. I know about those things, and I thank God for everything now. Because every time I see the hand of God in my life, every time I see anything that remotely closely resembles God or His goodness in my life. Every time I just open my eyes, I'm glad because I could have been left dead there in Lystra. Every time I take a step, I'm thankful because I could have remained shipwrecked and lost at the sea. Every time I, I mention the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I thank God because He took me out of the hands of those, those, those multitudes that were seeking my life for preaching the risen Savior. I'm grateful that I have a voice, that I have breath, that I have my life at all. I've learned to be content, he said. You know what? You and I don't have to lose something in order to be thankful, though. You can develop a taste for your blessings by simply realizing what life would be like without them. Next time we want to whine about things, we ought to think about what it would be like without them. Can't stand my mom and my dad. Okay, live without them. 
Let, let them get killed in a car accident today. Then tell me how much you appreciate them. Too late now. You're weeping over the casket, begging God to give you one more chance to say, I'm sorry. And I love you. Go ahead. I, I, my wife, I don't I could care less. <laughs> she drives me crazy. I wouldn't care if she ran off with another guy. Let her run off with another guy and see how you feel. She's the worst cook in the world. Okay, go ahead and put her in a position where she's a paraplegic now, or she's on her back and can't do anything for you now. She can't meet any needs, and so she, you have to feed her. Then you'll wish to God you had that food she used to make. I'm just saying, we don't think about our blessings until after we've lost them. And we're not grateful enough, and we don't thank God enough. Well, I, don't, I wish I had my health as junk. Well, you ought to be glad you were able to stand up and get here at all. Oh, I... I just don't understand. If I wish I could be like so-and-so. And I, yeah, I know, I know. Okay, lose what you have, and you'll be grateful for what you had. See, it's never so bad that it couldn't be worse. Yet we fail to remember that. Irma Bombeck, in her article to Red Book, stated this. An estimated 1.5 million people are living today after bouts with breast cancer. She goes on to say... Every time I forget to feel grateful to be among them, I hear the voice of an eight-year-old named Christina who had cancer of the nervous system. When asked what she wanted for her birthday, she thought long and hard and finally said, I don't know. I have two sticker books and a Cabbage Patch doll. I have everything. Perspective is the basis of a grateful and thankful spirit. Perspective, isn't it? Twelve-year-old boy named David was born without an immune system. You may have heard of him. Years and years ago this took place. But he underwent a bone marrow transplant in order to correct the deficiency. But up to that particular point, he had spent his entire life in a plastic bubble. They have movies about him. John Travolta. You know. He wasn't doing that in the bubble. But anyway, he played the boy in the bubble. At least I think he did. Sometimes, whatever. But anyway, so he, he spent his whole life in a plastic bubble in order to prevent exposure to common germs, bacteria, and viruses that could have killed him. He lived without ever knowing any human contact at all. He could not, could not contact, come into contact with anyone. When asked what he'd like to do if and when released from his protective bubble, he said these words. I want to walk barefoot on grass and touch my mother's hand. Can you imagine? We don't have the right perspective today, do we? I want you just to think with me, and I don't have time to get into the, the message. The message was simply this, three attitudes that will keep you from being thankful and everything. But I want you to ask yourself, what am I really thankful for? Or what am I not thankful for that I ought to be thankful for? There's nothing in the world, hardly. Now, there are some things. I, I'm going to say that. I can't say this a blanket. But one thing that drives me crazy, I guess. Okay, there, there's not a whole lot of things more aggravating to me than a car that's not running right. You go out to start it and it goes click, click. Or you go out to start it and it goes click. And you, you go to take off and it goes boom, 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 boom. You ever been in those cars? I know, you're driving them, I, I know, yeah. 
I, I know, I know that feeling. Trust me, I've been in there a long time. Now, I, I got a car that runs pretty good now, but it hasn't always been that way. And then eventually they all go bad. If you keep them long enough. That's frustrating. You know what? You can get to the point where you're not thankful for that car at all. It becomes more of a burden than it is a blessing, that's for sure. And you know, at that point, maybe there's some things we ought to start thinking about doing to change our circumstance. I'm, I'm okay with that. But you know what? If we're not careful, we become very bitter toward things. We become very cold toward things. We find ourselves having an attitude toward things. And you know, God says it's just going to steal your joy. It's going to keep you from rejoicing. It's going to keep you from being thankful. I want to encourage you to be thankful for who you have and what you have today. As we go into Thanksgiving, do you realize that those first, first pilgrims that came to America, you've got to understand that the first Thanksgiving was really in 1610, 1611, I can't remember exactly. But there was only 60 people that survived that winter of over 400 prior to that day. Can you imagine? You brought family and friends with you. You brought children, maybe even. If someone, this was mostly all men at that point, though. At that point, I understand that. But still, they they bonded. They were friends. They might have been brothers. They may have been cousins and nephews. I'm not sure who was all on there and what their relations were. But they lost their lives. 340 or more lost their lives, and yet they still thanked God. There's even evidence that even cannibalism took place in the confines of those camps, just to survive and to live. And yet they were able to thank God for what they had at one point. Folks, we have so much. And I just want to encourage you to take the gospel duty and, and, and to, to make it yours and say, I'm going to thank God in everything. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do that. I don't want to hear some horrible news, and I don't want to get a bad report from the doctor, and I don't want those things to happen. None of us do. I'm not going to let the devil steal the joy of the Lord in my life. I'm not going to let him steal my, my hope and, and just my rejoicing. I, I've got to be everything God wants me to be, and I'm just going to be thankful for whatever God's given me. That wife, that husband, those children. I'm going to tell you, if you've got a rough marriage right now, if you would be more grateful for the spouse that you think is useless, good for nothing, you might be surprised how your gratitude and thankfulness for that spouse would rub off in your attitude and actions toward them. And it may just make a difference. Be very careful that you're not ungrateful for things that God says you ought to be grateful for. And even the hard times you're going through, you say, you don't understand, I'm going through a difficult divorce right now. Don't don't be careful that you don't get to the place where you're so bitter toward people and things that you can't rejoice in the Lord. You still have your salvation. You still have your church family. You still have people you can turn to. You've got so many things to be thankful for. And it could still be worse than you think. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd help us to be thankful and grateful today.